Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, in our learning time today, we've talked about, uh, we're, we're going to learn today about how to be people of influence. We talked about that last week. We're in 1 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like. It's going to be towards the end of your Bible, and there's a bunch of little books that Paul has written, St. Paul. And um, we're looking about how Paul was so tremendously influential in the world around him. I have a bit of conflict of values in my own life where uh, um, I really want to continue to learn and grow intellectually, but I'm extremely lazy. Um, and so, you know, though you can see how those things are problematic, how they conflict with each other. And so uh, a few years ago, I found out about this audio series uh, called the, hundred, what is it? the World's 100th Greatest Books. And so they're like 30-minute and one-hour summaries of the author and the book. And so like, I'm not going to read like Brothers Karamazov. You know, my daughter did, but, I, you know, I'm not going to ever read that book. I mean, there's, I guess there's some of it where I'm just coming to terms with myself. I'm never going to read Paradise Lost. Nope, never. It's not even on my list. But now I get to listen to a summary and feel like I got, uh, I don't know, maybe at a dinner party I can keep up. Well, there's a second series they came out with, 100 Most Influential People or something like that, 100 Greatest People in the World. And, and I'm going through that right now. Again, I'm enamored about uh, reading or listening to these men and women of the world that have altered maybe most of the world anyway. And what I find is interesting is that, let's see, most of the people that are, are, had the most influence on us are, are philosophers and religious leaders, and then scientists, and then least... Uh, politicians. And I, I tell you that just to encourage you, um, <laughs> that, that it's just a flash in a pan for most of them. And the reason, I think, the reason is, is because there's so much difference between influence and power. And, and philosophies and religions speak to influence. They're trying to change a person from the inside out. And political, powerful, military, you know, taxing authorities, they try to f- kind of mold you uh, from the outside in. In many ways, it's, it's like good and bad parenting, right? I will control you. And sure, the people will comply until you're out of sight. And whether it's Marxism or, or Russian communism or whatever it might be, as soon as the threat is gone, so is any kind of influence. Well, meanwhile, there's these other groups that want to say, I can, I can change your life through the, your value system. And that's the point of, of the religious influence. And and it, no matter what list you look at, you're going to find on the top five that Jesus Christ is one of the most influential men in all of history. And usually within the top 25, probably t- top 10, but certainly within the top 25 is St. Paul. And the reason they'll choose St. Paul is because he um, wrote, he didn't write most, a lot of people think he did, but he, he didn't write most of the New Testament. He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament that teach us how to think about Christianity. So in many ways, he, was, he helped define what Christianity is. Now, in that context, it's interesting that St. Paul makes it to this list, let's just say, of the top 25 most influential people of all time, and yet he had no power. <laughs> now, he certainly had no political influence. The, the, the state was after him. He spent most of his most influential years in jail or running in some way. He didn't have any money. He was as poor as a pauper. He didn't have, in many respects, influence within his old peer group. They threw him out. And so while he had nothing to speak of in the context of power or money or, or 
or strength, right? He influenced the world. And here's how. Because the one thing he did have was the gospel. And the gospel has a power all by itself. And what we're going to look, um, look at today, what we're going to try to learn today is what did Paul have that made him so influential? How could he come into a town, Thessalonica, for just two short months and turn the place upside down? How could that, that place still be visited by, visit, by tourists today because he was there for two months, maybe six weeks? And we're going to look at these things. If you'll turn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to be listening for kind of words of influence. The words of impact that he has on people's lives are going to be his devout love for them and also his purpose. So as I read through this, um, these two or three paragraphs, I want you to kind of be look, listening for quite graphic words relating to his affection for these people. Verse 17. <clears throat> but brothers, he calls them brothers. There you go. But brothers... When we were torn away from you for a short time, now in person but not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, I certainly, Paul did, uh, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will be our glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Oh, indeed, it is you. You are our glory and our joy. Now, let's jump to chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy, <clears throat> but Timothy has just come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and your love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and how you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all, of, in, in all our distress and persecutions, we, are, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that you have given us in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we might see you again and supply you with what is lacking in your faith. Now, here's his final prayer for them is in 13 through, or, uh, 11 through 13. Now, may God and... Father himself, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. And may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each of you and for everyone else, just as ours did to you. May uh, he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. You want to be a person of influence, right, in your parenting, just in your peer group, maybe in, in mentoring around here or in a place like at work or, or a place where you volunteer. A person of influence has attributes that Paul has, and he understands that. And it's not, he doesn't have these things so he can be a person of influence. He is these things, and he influences people. A big difference. The first thing that he has that we need to spend a little bit more time on, we looked at it last week, is his obvious love. Now, we looked at this last week. Again, if you remember, he says in the 12 verses we read last week, six times he said, you saw it when I. You recall how much I loved you. Some version of that, some expression of that. And so he had, he had expressions and, and quite vivid experiences of loving this group of people. And then he used vocabulary. He said, I, I, I cared for you like a nursing mother, very tender. 
very sentimental. And then he says later on, but he said, but, but also like um, an encouraging father. He said, what motivated us? Because we loved you. You were dear to us. Listen to all those, those words of affection. And what I'd like to explain, I guess, this first part is that, that Paul was, has, had chosen to let himself be in love with them. I just love them. I'm, I've been searching all week to try to find an expression for us, since we only have kind of one word for love in uh, the English language. It, it, when we, when we, we kind of save this in love, participle, I think it is, right? Or, um, or preposition, what, who cares, right? Um, in love for our mate or someone, you know, that we're dating. And I would say, let's, I think that's what Paul's using for this church, he is in love with this church. He has given himself over to, to this group. He has given them his heart. And what's happened is his, his joy is permanently attached to their well-being. He is, not, he is not standing off. He is not putting up any kind of deflector shields. And, and so his, he's, he's choosing to pay a price for this, right? It, there's a cost in the, in the vocabulary that he's using here. And not just what we're talking about here, right, that, that if they're in trouble, he's going to feel that trouble. If, he, if they feel sorrow, he will feel sorrow. So as we look at just the next sentence, okay, the first sentence we're looking at, verse, the sentence number 17, when you look at that, look how even the violence of the words that Paul is using when he's talking about being away from this church that he is in love with. Okay, look at verse 17. First of all, he calls them brothers, and then the word of, of import is, is torn away. But brothers, uh, when we were torn away from you for this short time, now in person but not in thought. In other words, uh, certainly I, you know, I'm always thinking about you. But I love, first of all, he calls them brothers because he's in love with them as brothers. But the word torn away, is, I think, is attached to that, that uh, familial word because torn away um, is often used when describing grieving of a family member. The death of a child even. Sometimes the word orphan is attached to the root word here. And it's as though we were torn away and made orphans when we had to leave. We had to leave only physically. My soul was always with you. It never left you. When I watched a movie on Friday night, it was not a pick-me-up movie at all. Because the whole theme of the movie was uh, an orphanage or an adoption agency that without the mother's consent was tearing these children out of their arms and selling them to the highest bidders. And over and over again, you saw this, the lead role, her character as when she's 17 years old, behind these bars, watching her son drive away and look back at her as she's screaming. And she just keeps revisiting that orphanage, right, and, and that place where she stayed. And she's looking down when she saw the car pull up, and she's looking through the bars when she saw her son torn away from her. Over and over again, this, this value was expressed in this vivid movie about the sorrow that came. This is how Paul is identifying with his church because he has influence, because he's so connected to them. But look, even the rest of the sentence continues with is. is um, this word for even longing, um, look, again, it'll be on the screen, but brothers, when you were torn, when, when we were torn away from you for the short time in person, but not, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We did every single thing we could to get back together with you. Why? Because we had this longing 
But it, it, the word in its original language is not the word longing alone. It has a, a, a prefix on it. I don't remember a lot of Greek, but I remember the day we spent on, on epi. We, did, we spent probably a half a lecture on the prefix epi, and it meant super. It means off the chart. It means uh, extravagant. And so when the writers are coming upon this word that says longing, and they see epi in front of that, they say, okay, we're going to have to add something Oh, we're going to say intense longing. And this word with epi attached is used in other places, but in a negative way, it means lust. That's how powerful this love affection that Paul has for this church. I was torn away. And now what is lust? It means my heart is constantly against my will meditating on you. I'm out just, I'm picking flowers, I'm walking on a trail, I want to think about something else, but I keep longing for you and how to get back to you. That's how tender his in love was with them. He is connected to them. His joy is permanently attached to this church. And and that's not all. You'll see later on, um, let me show you in in chapter 3 how he... It's, it's life and death for him. It's not hyperbole. Look at verse, I'll, I'll, I'm going to set it up in verse chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 6 and 7, and that's going to give you some context for verse 8, and that will be on the screen. Now, what's happened is Paul can't go back to Thessalonica or he'll be killed. And so he, he can't take waiting any longer, so he sends his best friend Timothy, who he doesn't do well unless he's with Timothy. And so he's going to send Timothy anyway. That's maybe a one-month journey, a two-week stay, another month back. So Paul's waiting, waiting, and then he gets this letter back from Timothy about Thessalonica, the church, and all is well. Now watch how Paul responds to that, that news. Verse 6 is the context. But Timothy had just come back to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and your love. And he told us that you always have pleasant memories of us as you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and the persecutions that we were encouraged about it because of your faith, for now we really live since you are standing strong in the Lord. Now we really live. The theme of 1 Thessalonians is to stand strong in the Lord. That was Paul's hope. But what do you do when you're removed, when you're torn away from somebody that you love and you lust after your reconciliation to them? You, you go to the dark places. It's a young church. They're in persecution. And so he's thinking, in absence of information, he's probably thinking that they're in trouble or they're hurting or they're not doing well in the context of of being persecuted. Maybe they're giving up on faith. Maybe the naysayers are teaching them false doctrine. I mean, you can go fast, deep. And he gets this news back. So in the context of fast and deep into the dark place, how is he if he's really alive with good news? He was feeling like he was dead. He was was dressed in black. He was having a mourning. And then, and then, You know, Timothy comes back with this letter, and now he's really alive. It is is so difficult um, for our culture to understand the intensity of this love. Our our vocabulary limits that. And again, I, I just appeal to you to consider the words in love, to have a relationship with a friend or friends or a community in a church and say, I'm in in love with them. Uh, I apologize, but 
One, I think one of the more uh, vivid expressions of this is, was in that movie Avatar. If you saw it, there were the, again, the writers there were trying to express what does so one look like. And so they, because it's science fiction, they can make people up any way they want. And the, and the little blue people, their hair, okay, was not just attached to their scalp. It was attached to their brain. No, it was attached to their mind, which is their soul. And it had this long ponytail, right? And at the end of the ponytail, it was a fray. And, and they would have soul oneness, not, not sexual intimacy, but soul oneness when they would wrap their ponytails together and then those ends would intertwine. And as this guy would mount a, a dragon, for example, these flying dragons, he would, he would attach himself not to the, the saddle but to the soul of the dragon. And their minds, they would do mind melds, if you know that from science fiction, and they would communicate that way. Their eyes would dilate and it was like it was this connection. And then when they would meet in community, they would do that as well. And they were communing together at a soul level. It's unfortunate. It's all, that's all I can think of. That's what Paul had with this church. That was the intimacy he had. It was the love that allowed him to influence. But love is not enough. I know. Who wants to hear that? I mean, I, I, do you watch talk shows? Love is enough. Love is not enough. Because Paul not only obviously loved them, but he purposely, he purposely gave them truth. He, he did not use love so he could tell the truth. These things are so together. He loved them so much he told them truth. You remember last week I said there was a purpose for all that he did when he talked about people in his parenting style, when he was parenting, he's nurturing as a mother, but more when he was uh, encouraging as a father you remember it said, for, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Why? Encouraging, comforting, urging. Why? To live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. It's, it's not just to hang out and have friends, but I want to get you ready to live a life worthy of the calling of God okay, into his kingdom and for his glory. Well, I'm just taking what we learned last week, and I'm just I'm saying in this set of paragraphs, he does it. He continues to do it. I mean, look what happens. I love this in verse, um, chapter 3, verse 10. Night and day we prayed most earnestly that we might see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Sometimes some other translations put it this way. It's a little more obvious. He says... And address your shortcomings. So here's what it looks like, right? We take part one, this obvious love, and you can see, right, them reuniting. It's, it's, in, it's in the mind, right, of, of all these movies you've seen. And they run and they grab each other and they're hugging and they, everybody's laughing until they cry. They go to the biggest house they can. They have this, you know, extravagant meal together. There's a lot of wine going around. Everybody's laughing and cheering each other and encouraging one another. And then Paul gets his glass and ding, ding, ding. Hey, I, I thought, um, since we're all here all at once, I thought maybe I could address some of your shortcomings. It's like, who invited this guy, right? I mean, why would you, why would you do that, Paul? Because he loves them and he's purposeful. In, in the truth that he tells them, even in his prayer, even in his prayer, the last, you know, few sentences that we read, the last sentence, verse 13 says, this is, his Paul, this is his prayer, that he, God, may strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 
Like again, this is an early book. They were expecting Jesus to return many, any day, month, year. And so he said, look, 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 i got to get you ready for the return of your Savior and King. And so I, I want to make sure that you're holy and blameless for that day. And so I'm, I'm, I'm loving you deeply. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to help you in your shortcomings. He's purposely confronting them on what they need to know so they can be blameless and holy. Look, uh, George MacDonald, um, kind of a hero of C.S. Lewis, wrote this about the nature of God. It's, it's quite uh, clever. He said that God is easily pleased but rarely content. God is easily pleased but rarely content. That's what truth and love ends up doing a lot of times, right? Look, look, you took a first step. Take another one. Look, he can walk. Now run, right? You did that math problem. Yay, good for you. Do the next one. You graduated. Get a job. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that one. Saving, <clears throat> saving up, saving up. Um, he wants them to be changed. He wants them to become like Christ. He is easily, Paul is easily pleased with all they've accomplished in his absence. And now he's coming to help them with their shortcomings. If you want to become a person of influence and long-term influence, not just to constrain people if you're a control person, it's not to just manipulate people to get what you want. But if you want to be a person that influences people for long-term, you have to have this, um, this recipe, and it's a delicate one. It's this mixture of obvious love, so there's never a doubt about that, and then this purposeful truth that's going somewhere, and that somewhere is for eternity. Because it's easy to, it's easy to miss the, the levels of the ingredients of this, right? You can have love without truth. That's very famous. It's easy to do today. It's what people call love. It's not love. It's mostly just friendship. And there's no, no, no harm, no foul, but there's not a lot of change in that. You know, when, when a person um, loves another person but won't, but, but won't talk about truth so much, they're probably not in the love for for the better of that person. They're not in it for their joy. They're not in it for their maturity. They're not in it for their presentation to be blameless and holy on the coming of the Christ. They're probably in it because they like what they get. It's not uncommon to, like, I like to be liked. I, I kind of need to be uh, needed by you. Um, it's, I listened to this song way too much when I was in high school. But cheap trick, right? I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'd love you to love me. It's all kind of about what it's coming back to me. Here's how you know if you're in, again, it's not a bad relationship for a friendship, but it's not this kind of love that has influence. Here's how you know if you're in that. You can't, you can't give criticism, constructive criticism, purposeful truth, because when, that, when, when you do, you're afraid to do that because it would jeopardize the frailty of the friendship because the, it's a friendship that's just for fun. Aristotle would call this a friend for fun, a friend for enjoyment. And you can't receive criticism either because there's this feeling like, hey, what's this about? That's not what I signed on for. I mean, we're just doing hobbies together. That's it. And so you don't have that place. It's, again, it's, it's a good friendship for, for fun. 
It's like Cheers, right? Where everybody knows your name. Every, you know, right? Every Cheers, yeah. Norm. Norm is always going to be an alcoholic. He's always going to sit on that bar stool, and no one's ever going to really confront him about his marriage or about his drinking patterns. No one changes because they're not in it for change. They're just going to love in a friendship kind of way. You can mess up the, the mixture by just being truth-filled with not very much love or any love at all. That would be a friendship for cause. It would be a friendship for utility. Aristotle talks about that as well. It's, it's functional. It's purposeful. It's probably like work. You get stuff done. You, get a, you have a project, and you do your part, and I'll do my part. You know, you buy a wheelbarrow, I buy a lawnmower, and we'll switch back and forth. And it works as long as people think they're dealt with fairly, because if not, the feeling is either I'm being used or I'm being judged. When you come in and someone says you're doing it wrong, it's easy to come off as being judgmental. The Bible says don't, don't judge, but why does Paul judge? I'm going to need to deal with your shortcomings. In the rest of the books, actually, uh, the ends of both of these books to Thessalonians are about how to, how to straighten your life up. Well, because he's, doing it, he's not doing it in the context of truth without love. He's doing it with over this obvious in love, and then he's telling them the truth. There's no real change if you're in a relationship for utility. If it's tit for tat, if it's, if it's just you do this, I'll do that, you'll get the project done good for you. There's no long-term change. For long-term change to take place, for you to, have a, to be a person of influence, you have to choose to lean into the fear of being injured again okay, for the sake of love, for the sake of, of being involved in a relationship. Okay. When a person gives criticism and they're judgmental, it's to push you away. When a person gives criticism in the context of what uh, Paul is talking about here, it's to pull you in. You know the person is in love with you and wants, wants good for you. And so you, you can see this concoction and how powerful it is, this purposeful truth and this contagious love that's, you know, un, unrelenting. Now, um, it's interesting. Let me see. I think I might have forgot something there. Uh, so there's a third thing that, Paul, that motivates Paul that's kind of unique, but it's in the passage. It's a couple uh, sentences. I want to bring it up for your information, but it's, it's somewhat unique to the leaders in a church. This is a, besides... His power of influence is in his love. His power of influence is in his purposeful truth-telling. But there's another thing that Paul, that's motivating Paul, and it's, it's, it's a reward for later. It's an eternal reward. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, they're up on the screen. I won't spend much time with it because I think it's isolated to elders and pastors of a church, and I'm not sure I understand it. So that will keep it brief. 19 and 20 say, uh, for what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown in which we will, will be uh, the glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed. You are our glory and our joy. And glory means like reputation or report or opinion. You are our glory. Paul is talking about, again, everybody's assuming Jesus is coming back soon. And when he comes back, what is, what is going to be his glory and pride? What is going to be his crown? It's very strange. I think it's mystical. It's spiritual in nature. I don't understand it. But it is this, 
it is, it is an emotional connection, if the pastor allows it, between the pastor and leaders, the elders, and their church. His crown and glory is the people. He is proud when they do well. He is sorrowful when they do poorly. He is, is, um, he is overly connected to them emotionally. And I think it's, if the pastor allows that, if the elder allows that, it's, it's for this very purpose. I, I think the leaders of a church, elders and pastors, are rewarded with crowns if they invest in love and truth in their congregation. Now, you don't have to do this. I mean, uh, some uh, pastors choose to make church a business, and the, and the elder board, they're businessmen, and we just run it like a business, and then there's not, there's not anything to be given. And, and it's a very tantalizing uh, desire to do it that way. And the reason is, is because um, being a pastor or a leader in a church is extremely difficult. If you choose to open your heart up, what you see is a lot of falling down. And if you're not patient, you don't see anyone getting back up so much. And so it just wears on you. And so somewhere along the line, it's pretty easy to do, someone throws a switch and they say, why don't we just um, kind of run it by the numbers and we can chart things on a graph easier and we'll just we'll, 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 uh, measure our success in, in I, I don't know, you know, beans or, or numbers or or people in pews, whatever, giving, I, I don't know. But it becomes that way. And, and then this is, I would say, this is one of the major reasons people leave the ministry. Because the weight of this, the potential of this connectivity and the desire to not want to do it because it hurts so much. When Spurgeon wrote on this passage, here's what he wrote, put up on the board. I live by your spiritual joy. I suffocate by your spiritual indifference. I choke to death on your spiritual misery. I am tied to you, and I can't help it. One writer put, there's an emotional attachment. There is a terrible emotional attachment, if the pastors allow it, between the congregation and their soul. Some can't do it. Some won't do it. And, and this is motivating Paul. Paul has chosen... He has chosen to lean into relationships so that when he's not with them, it's as though he's torn away from them. He is mourning them as though they were dead. And now he's living for the congregation so that they would be his glory, they would be his crown. Even at our church, what we do, you know, for purposeful, you know, for, for purposeful truth-telling and intimacy, uh, it's coming up. In February, we take an annual retreat, and one of the things we do on one of the first nights is we go around the room, and everybody says what their plans are for the next year, if they're going to stay on board, and if it's going to be healthy for them to stay, and, you know, just those, those sorts of things. And then uh, we tell that person, you know, six-on-one or seven-on-one or whatever, what they need to work on, the shortcoming they need to deal with. And one of the things we added the last couple of years is that you could volunteer first if you wanted. <laughs> I think that's been helpful. Uh, I want to volunteer that I need to be less sarcastic. Oh, good. Okay, because everybody's like, okay, I'll just <laughs> got it for. Because we, we want, it's so much easier not to do this. It's so much easier to do run a business and call it a church. If you want to be a person of influence, you have to, you have to be willing to lean into this. At Grace, uh, we've coined a phrase 
called relational discipleship, and we've called it that because we, we intentionally form most of our ministry structure so that you might find a relationship. These are not easy to do, okay? And there's a lot of stumbling around, but we want you to get involved in some context where you can connect with someone, someone older than you and someone younger than you, someone to be mentored by and someone to mentor. And we want relational discipleship to take place so that you can be in love with someone outside of your living room, someone inside this church, so that you could feel the power of that love and have conversations that are purposefully truthful. And here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to be willing to be hurt. Okay. I don't know when it, wherever it started, I understand. I, this, is, this could be one of the worst cultures in American history because of the extremely high divorce rate and then the mobility, our mobility. And so we kind of have a, I don't want to get grow deep, uh, roots too deep because they'll just get torn out and they hurt. And so if you come from a divorce background, there's always that, th- that fear and that threat of something that you thought would never end ending. And then, you know, I grew up in an Air Force family. We traveled all the time. And my parents, my poor mom, she never, she did not know how to have a conversation any deeper than the weather. It was a survival skill. Now everybody's in the military. It seems like so many people move every two to three years, and that affects your soul. And how does it affect your soul? It makes it very difficult to be in love. And in the context of being in love, you get to have purposeful, truthful conversations. You get to have an experience of the mystery of a church that is a crown. And so my prayer for you is that you will choose to let God do this in your life, to find these places of of mystical attachment (laughs) so that your braids might intertwine and you could be one with, with a church, the bride of Jesus Christ. It's not a club. I'll pray for you as Paul prayed um, because he prays that God would do that in your life. You have to want to. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear a way for this experience to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other, but also for everyone else, overflowing love, just as we have done to you. And may he strengthen your hearts and heal your wounds so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God, our Father, and when our Lord Jesus comes, and he's going to come with all of his holy ones. And all God's people said, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.